One of the biggest things we as fundamentalists watch for is changing ordinances. It's pretty important stuff. As Joseph Smith said, if there's no change in ordinances, there's no change of priesthood. Now this seems pretty simple on the surface, but when does something become a change versus cleaning up the language of an ordinance? Well, today I have Drew Briney back on the podcast to talk about his new book, Changing Ordinances, Changing Priesthood, that tries to explain just that. Drew comes on and breaks down historical incidences of change both in and out of the LDS Church and evaluates what those changes mean to us as Mormons and Disciples of Christ. That's next on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Okay, just a couple of quick announcements here. If you're looking for a place to attend sacrament meeting and don't know where to go, I want you to reach out to me. Me and others stand ready to help you find a spiritual home, whether that's a new church, a gathering spot of independence, or even if you just need a soft place to land for a time to learn how to have sacrament meeting in your own home. Myself and others stand ready to help you find that place. All you gotta do is just drop me a line at mormonrenegade at gmail.com and we'll quickly reach out to you to help you find the place you want and need to be. Next, I have felt for a while now that the sisters haven't had a good place to go to have their questions answered without a bunch of dudes creeping around. To fill this need, my wife Tanya has set up a Facebook group just for women to talk about questions about fundamentalism. The name of that group is Mormon Fundamentalism for Women. Now, just a warning. If you're a dude thinking about trying to jump on this site, I'm going to give this to you in my best Liam Neeson impression. I have a certain set of skills, and I'll find you, and I will publicly mock you endlessly, without mercy, for many, many weeks. So whether you're a fundamentalist woman seeking sisterhood, or a woman investigating fundamentalism, this place is for you. Again, the name of that Facebook group is Mormon Fundamentalism for Women. Look, it's no secret that our society has become much more crude and coarse. To become and raise men and women of virtue and character is a Herculean task. To help with this, I have recently wrote and published a book. Now, back in the 1700s, Washington had a book called Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. It was a book with 110 rules that talked about how to conduct yourself like a civilized person in society, something that today's society is sorely lacking. What I did is I went back through the book and I reinterpreted his original sayings for the 21st century. So the book is laid out in a way in which you see Washington's original rule. Right below that is my explanation for the 21st century. And below that, you'll find two or three examples of where to use this in the real world. Now, to go along with this, there's a workbook that helps parents teach these principles and practices to their kids. To find the book, go to mormonrenegade.com, go to the bottom of the page, search out the blog post, and order your copy today. I can bear personal testimony from personal experience that this is an invaluable tool to help you raise men and women of virtue and character. Welcome back, big guy. <laughs> Thanks. Um, sorry, I got to pop up on my on my computer. No problem. Distract me. 
<laughs> it happens. Yeah. So, everything going good? Most everything, yeah. Super glad to, to uh, you know, I'm, I'm out here kind of sort of on my own, and it's it's so good to have somebody to chat with about the gospel and, and visit about these things. And even just staying in prayer together was super cool. So, yeah, I'm happy. It's good. Well, dude, if you're happy to talk to me, you need to get better friends. So, <laughs> well, I'll take that under advisement. <laughs> yeah. Well, dude, I'll tell you what. Um, your project that you were working on with the Doctrine and Covenants, I know a couple people who grabbed grabbed some of that. They were astounded. And so when I saw that you had yet another book coming out, um, I was like, oh, we got to talk about it. Because the title of it, <laughs> the title of it, even is intriguing because this is one of those things that that I find you have to um, really dive into when you get into Mormon fundamentalism, right? Is the, and I'm pulling it back up because my phone kind of <laughs> died, is, uh, and here it is, the changing ordinances and losing priesthood. Yeah. This is something you have to contend with when you first come into fundamentalism. Yeah. This this is what I like to say sometimes might be most people's first oh crap moment as they begin yeah. to really look into this because yes. this question throws into doubt for a lot of folks like is it valid is it not valid so when I saw the title I was like I had I had to get you on but so what 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 prompted this book Oh gosh you know um a, a few things I actually and I, I I tease in the introduction and I, I tease on Facebook that I wrote it on accident, but it really is kind of true. Um, I tend to do my gospel studies and keep everything written down and prepared so I can annotate it, write cross references, that sort of stuff. And so I've been compiling stuff for this for literally for 20 years, but there's, you know, there have been a couple few books that got put out in the interim, excuse me, that I was intending to write altogether. So originally, my concept for writing a book on changing ordinances was going to be kind of what De uh, is it Debra Anderson wrote, um, the development of LDS temple worship, mm -hmm. and and Werger's Mysteries of Godliness. You know, kind of expand on that. That was kind of my initial intention, um, and I, I just perceived it as this monster big project. <clears throat> um, but that was really kind of what converted me to fundamentalism. I mean. To me, that was that was the doctrine that really mattered. Um, Adam God teachings converted me to that doctrine um, and that understanding of the Godhead and those types of things, but it didn't move me to be a fundamentalist. Um, when I read about changing ordinances, like you said, that was my oh crap moment. Um, what does this mean? <clears throat> so I, I've been intending to write that part for a long time. The, the second part of the book, um, I, I didn't intend to write it all. That was the real accident. <laughs> and pulling it together was kind of what, what, what happened here. So, um, uh, you know, I, th I think for, for fundamentalists, it's not very uncommon for them to know that Joseph Smith taught, if you change the ordinances, change the priesthood, change the priesthood, change the ordinances. If there's no change the priesthood, no change the ordinances, you know, all these makes like four statements that Modus Tollens tells you um, you can you can conclude the world from those things. And when I say modus tollens for anybody who doesn't know, um, if you say if it's raining, there are clouds, that's always true. But if you say if it's not raining, there are no clouds, that's not true. 
Um, so Modus Tollum says the way to find truth out of things, and this is an old just logic construct, you know, developed by the early Greeks, as far as I understand. They say if the if the if you negate the, the second part, it negates the first part. So if you say that if there are no clouds, it is not raining. And those are always true as a as a matter of logic. And with the statements that Joseph made, every everything becomes logically put there. If you change ordinances, that's be, that will change the priesthood. But if you change the priesthood, that will change the ordinances. If you don't change the ordinances, if it's the same, there's no change, there's been no change in priesthood. And you know, all of those things you can extrapolate the world from right from all of those. But they're all very, very strong statements. And uh, you know, if you if you have any sort of mind at all, you you have to be concerned about that. Um, and, and there are ways to get around it. And there are some actually, I think, better arguments than people usually use that I put in the book to get around it. Um, but they're they're very far from satisfying. Okay. Now I don't want to give away the book here, right? <laughs> but I do maybe <laughs> want to go over a couple of examples, maybe some ones that, that you find especially problematic with with the changes that that you have seen that that are really kind of rough stuff to have to deal with. Um, because look, about 40% of my audience are active LDS folks who are coming in to listen. Um, they're they're yeah. coming in because they obviously have concerns. Um yeah. and some of these come up, some of them don't. To you, what was what are some of the more problematic changes here to ordinances that you've saw? Oh shoot. Um if you want. While you think about it, I can give you mine. Okay. <laughs> Probably yeah. the one the one that I'm I'm most concerned about because its implications are so far reaching. This was between 1921 and 19, I want to say 53 or 57. I can't remember. <clears throat> but they changed how men were Ordained. received the priesthood. Yes. Um, they they stopped conferring the priesthood and just ordained straight to an office. Yes. Yeah. Well, on the surface, people might say, "Well, it's just semantics, right? It doesn't it doesn't right. change anything." Well, I dare to disagree, right? Uh, I believe it was Brigham Young who said, "You can't give something you don't have," right? Yep. And so, ordaining straight to the office throws into question the validity of actually holding the priesthood right now that's a good 30 right around 35 years right yeah now yes. i have a buddy who's who's a a physicist of all things so he deals a lot with statistics and certainties <laughs> and i was mm -hmm. like okay i need you to do something for me I, I i remember i concocted like this story to try to veil what it is i was looking at not that he was lds but I was like, <laughs> I don't know how I feel about it. And he just finally said, just tell me what you're really looking at. I was like, okay, here's the deal, right? And I explained this thing to him. Mm -hmm. And he says, okay, let me, let, me, let me run some numbers. So he goes and gets like Mormon birth rates for the, that period of time. And he, you know, starts doing, excuse me, <clears throat> doing some averages and those sorts of things. And he comes back and I'm like, well, <clears throat> how many people today do you think actually hold the priesthood? in the LDS church. And he's like, mm -hmm. just about under 1% now. Wow. If you extrapolate that time out, because they never went back and corrected it. They just started ordaining the correct way again. 
under, right. I believe it was McKay. And right. so you have essentially two generations that never received the priesthood correctly. They don't go back to correct it. And you have no idea who has it and who doesn't, but it's a very small number yes. as it gets perpetuated through. And oh, that's, that's fascinating. And that, it's cool that you got those numbers. But... Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty stark. And, and that was one of the changes that I saw. That was one of my severe oh, oh crap moments. Like, so if yeah. they have it, what does that mean for temple rites? What does that mean for baptisms? What does that mean yes. for any number of things? And then I believe it was Taylor who had that prophecy about there'd be a day in the church where you wouldn't know who had the priesthood, I think he said, or or they thought they had the priesthood, but they didn't. And I wondered if that tied directly in with his revelation. Mm, interesting. Yeah, you know, um, I, I paused so long when you asked me that because I... It kind of at some level i think they're all equally problematic right um and, and you were talking about not giving my book away and and frankly i think it's just maybe necessary um to address some of those issues here um, the book is actually pretty short by the way it's 108 pages so this is not a, a monumental huge does it have uh, pictures drew no huh. <laughs> no pictures <laughs> I'm there just, are a couple headers that right. you know, have some good space, so you know. I'm yeah, more of a green know, eggs and ham kind of guy myself. So right. <laughs> there's no pictures. I don't know. This is the you know a, a lot of people really like the shorter books, and sure. I just want to get a nugget. And I don't tend to write those. That tends to be really hard for me because I want to hit everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was actually kind of difficult for me because I didn't. Um, but let me let me throw throw out some early examples. Um, of, of kind of how I approach it in the book. So there's a Times and Season article, and it's written by Junior. <clears throat> and so who's Junior? It's probably Joseph. Taylor's the editor. Um, the, it's, it shows up in four different um, installments of the magazine. And the basic thrust of it is all of Christendom lacks the priesthood because they don't do baptisms right. Paul clearly says it's by immersion. And if you read um, Romans 13, it's very clear. It's by immersion. And if you don't do it like that, then um, you're doing it wrong. And uh, I, I've thought about this long and hard for multiple reasons, this whole idea of changing ordinance, especially the last few years, because um, there have been a few new documents come out to really challenge this idea as to what does that mean? Um, so I think this one was really significant because he says, well, you changed baptism because it was by immersion, and now it's not. He doesn't talk about symbolism. He doesn't talk about anything else, just about immersion. Sprinkling's not good enough. You know, it says you're being buried. How are you being buried if you're getting sprinkled? You know, maybe by a tsunami, that's okay. But, you know, right. um, it needs to be underneath. <clears throat> so he's pretty adamant about that, and, and that gives us one clue of what does he mean by a change. But the thing that struck me that I've been reading um, over the last few years and finding more and more evidence of um, made me kind of rethink this whole teaching, this whole, this whole doctrine. <clears throat> um, so let me give you one example here. How, how do we know baptisms by immersion? Well, because Paul said so. Okay, well, that's great. Um, as Mormons, do we believe in non-canonical texts? 
oh no, those are wicked. They haven't been sustained by the prophet or something, you know. But frankly, I can find temple ordinance stuff all over in non-canonical texts that mm -hmm. aren't in the New Testament. Really deep, awesome stuff. Read the Apocalypse of Moses. Read Discourse on Abaddon. Read the fall of the Archangel Michael. Really great stuff there that teaches Mormonism that is anti-Christian in as much as it's Mormon. <laughs> right. And it's non-canonical. There's great stuff there. Um and, and, and as I study early Christian history, I, I stop and say, okay, so, so Paul said it's by immersion. But what does Paul give us a baptismal prayer? We don't have baptismal prayer in the New Testament. Does he tell us it's for the remission of sins? Well, yeah, it kind of says that. But you could also argue that that's, he's talking about something a little bit different because of the context and, you know, getting Greek and argue about stuff like that. Um, does it tell you that it makes you a member of the church? Definitely does not clearly state that um so what about these things you know um if we read about early Christ christian baptisms they don't say these things they don't have our baptismal prayer um so you know if you trust joseph's a revelator then you say okay well we've got the baptismal prayer great okay um but did he reveal everything did he reveal everything in baptism or was that one thing at a time too he didn't do rebaptisms immediately. He didn't do baptisms for health for a while. Those were things that kind of came later. So, um, so the, this question of how do we know what the original was um, is a really big question. Do we have an 1843 version of the endowment Joseph wrote as notes? No. Do we have Brigham Young's 1877? February, was it February 2nd, 1877, he finishes it up in the L. John Mellon Journal, and he says, um, this is the one that will be the example for all temples for all future generations. Do we have that? No. So, wow. So we've, we've got some problems. We do have some, some, some talk about Brigham tampering with some of the dialogue, but it doesn't show up in any of the modern versions. So that doesn't constitute a change. At least we don't know of any, anything. And we have Joseph giving him the injunction to put everything in order because it wasn't in order right. But did he give it to him word for word? Did, he, did Brigham have to find some of those words were later? Did he receive a vision that says, okay, this is when Adam says this? We have none of that information. So what constitutes change? So <clears throat> this question is where mainstream LDS people are just like, well, in fact, somebody even wrote whenever I announced the book, they said, well, um, uh, what was the word they used? Um, they said it's it's not a change; it's a um, adjustment. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm like, right, every, everything's an adjustment. I mean, you look at the synonym under change; you find adjustment there. Right. It's, it's there's some reason to make me feel good that I don't have to worry about this. Right. I don't want to worry about it because I want to believe I'm in the right spot. But none of the arguments of change really make a whole lot of sense, frankly. Um, but there are two things that I bring up in the book, and I'll, I'll spoil them because I'm not, not too worried about them, um, but that I think are super fascinating. And one, I, I didn't, in fact, when I sent it out to all my editors, I didn't even include this. Um, okay. And I ended up using it for a footnote, and then I got all excited about it and did a bunch more research. Um, <clears throat> 
and this was at any rate, it's it's maybe too far off topic for the book to hit it deeply, but I think maybe for podcasts it's okay. Perfect. So um, for about 400 years, Christian baptisms were done in the nude. And that's news to a lot of people. And they're like, oh, that can't be true. And guess what? The very first pictures we have of Christ's baptism, he's nude. Guess what? When we have people talking about baptisms, the earliest church, they're doing it in the nude. And, the, and for about 200 years, they were co-ed nude baptisms. Hmm. But then after about 150, 200 years, we don't know exactly, um, you know, we don't have super good records of those things. Um, they started separating the men from the women. Um, <clears throat> and I just found one, I, I quote it in the book, uh, that's thanks to, oh, what's it? There's a new book out. I, I don't know how new it is. I was super excited about it because I was planning on writing it and it saved me writing a book that was going to take me 20 years to get to. <laughs> um, but it's um, Mormon doctrine is found in the pseudepigraphal and apocryphal writings. Of the, okay. of the, I think I may have had that guy on multiple times. His name's Ken Peterson. Yeah, yeah, Peterson. That's what I was, yep. I've I was had him a book. few times and we covered just that <laughs> book and some of his stuff and especially like the Pista Sophia which has uh -huh. some amazing temple doctrine in it. Yes. Um, yes. And so, yeah, yeah, he's been on, he's, I'm a huge fan of him. He's, he's a great guy. Yeah. So I've not met him. I don't know anything about him, but I was shouting his praises. I was so excited. He got it. And I bought that book. Um, and uh, as I was writing, I thought footnotes, I thought, you know, I wonder if there's anything, you know, the, the baptismal prayer maybe shows up in one of those. And he's got a little excerpt in it and he's got a, a place in there. Uh, I want to say it's the Acts of Peter or something, but whatever it is, I cite it in the book, you can find it. But the, the priesthood holder, it tells one of the women, he says, um, take her and, and uh, get her a girdle or something like that so that she can be baptized. So she's wearing a girdle and nothing else um, to get baptized. So basically she's topless, but she's got, you know, towel on the bottom type thing. Mm -hmm. So... Um, that's really disturbing to a lot of members of the church. It's disturbing to a lot of Christians. Nobody likes to talk about it, but that seems to be universal. And all the records that we have all seem to point to um, that they did it like that. And then they poured like, it sounds like a bucket of oil on them. You know, like it wasn't just a little bit of oil on their head. It was like all over their body. Um, and then they said, baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You know, so it's not a full baptismal prayer, but it's it's got part of it. So um, <clears throat> that well, that's that's really interesting. Um, but how do we know if that's important? Is that a change or not a change? Right? Did they attribute any significance to that? Yes, they did. Um, in fact, the significance they attributed to us: if you're getting baptized with clothes on, you're trying to hide your sins from God. You're trying to hide your sins from all these people. It's better just to be open and I am who I am and I am not hiding anything from God and I'm being born anew. I was born naked, I'm going to be rebaptized or you know, come be born again naked. That was their symbolism. Well, I think it was Peterson's book that led me to a citation. I looked up the citation, went up to the original source, um, and it was like early Christian practices or something. And in there, they cite another reason. And they say, well, you were baptized um, in remembrance of Christ who was crucified naked. And that's why you were baptized naked. <laughs> um. So it wasn't just that they were doing it as a practice. It's not like a cultural thing. Um, it, 
you know, which would be so far beyond our culture to even comprehend, they had doctrinal significance attached to that part of the baptism. It meant something to them, and it was doctrinally significant, and it made the ordinance more meaningful to them because of it. So is that a change to the ordinance? And, you know, if it is a change to the ordinance, it wasn't revealed to Joseph to do it that way. He never says anything about it. The closest thing we've got for Joseph is an ordinance in Nauvoo saying, um, quit skinny dipping at the, at, within city limits. You know, so, right. you know, that's the closest clue we could possibly have, which I don't think means anything, by the way. I'm just saying there, there's nothing there. And, and so if we didn't reveal it, does that mean it's not good? Or does that mean that our generation is not deemed worthy to receive it? Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not promoting one way or the other. I'm just looking at this and saying, is this a change or is it not a change? So that's one type of approach that I think is interesting and somewhat problematic in, in looking at changes to ordinances because Joseph himself is the one mocking Christians because you changed the ordinance because you don't do it by immersion. But when we read the ancient documents, none of us do it the same way the ancient earliest Christians do either. So that was one thing that got my attention that I thought was of interest. <clears throat> um, the second thing um, I, 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 uh, I originally, this has been a couple years ago, I was either talking to Jacob Vadreen or um, I was reading something he posted or something, I don't know, I don't remember. Um, but he was talking about how Brigham did sacrament prayers extemporaneously. Hmm. And uh, so anyway, I, I kept some of those citations and looked them up and I looked up other sources for, um, you know, Brigham teaching these things. And I, I, I frankly didn't find all the original sources that Jacob talked to me about originally. Um, but I, I don't think it matters. I got plenty there. But there was a, there were, there were a couple of quotes I found of Brigham complaining to the saints saying, um, you know, there were scarcely three words in that sacrament prayer that, that are in the scriptures. You need to follow it more closely. Mm. So um, and in modern church, they're like, you got to say it word for word. We've got like three of Brigham's prayers in, you know, documented, and he doesn't say it word for word once. But he does rebuke people because they didn't use enough of the words. It wasn't close enough to it. So that suggests this idea that the wording itself, and I'm not talking about whether it's one cup or 40 cups or whether it's broken first and blessed first or blessed and break if you use the signs or not. I'm not talking about any of those details, but the wording he suggests is a template, not a word for word mandatory. You know, this is how you have to say it. Um, but of course, with baptisms, that's exactly what we have. However, there's example number two. Um, Joseph Smith instructs Oliver Cowdery, DNC 20 is in the making, and we're putting some of the ordinances there. So that's where you find sacrament prayer and all that sort of stuff. He says, I want you to get the baptismal prayer and put it in DNC 20, get ready for DNC 20. So Oliver Cowdery does. Where does he get it from? Gets it from Third Nephi, right? But there's a problem. He doesn't copy it word for word and put it in DNC the same way. So, and I don't, I don't have um, the exact thing in my head, but the one says, having been commissioned of, I think this is DNC 20, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Holy Ghost, right? 
That's not what it says in third Nephi. Third Nephi, it says having authority from or having, you know. Well, they mean the same thing. So we 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 just okay with that. The church says stick with DNC 20 because we like it. I mean, they don't really give any justification for it. But actually, Joseph told him to copy it from Book of Mormon. So isn't the Book of Mormon one more accurate? Um, but you say, well, Doug Oliver Cowdery made several changes to the Doctrine and Covenants that Joseph did not approve. And we've got um, Orson Pratt complaining about that later, whenever they did a later edition. And, and Joseph made hundreds and hundreds of changes to the Doctrines of Covenants to fix what Oliver Cowdery was doing. And when Oliver Cowdery did DNC 120, um, he did make a really technical change to the baptismal area prayer, like in that verse or the verse before or something, but he doesn't change that. So that maybe, does that suggest that it's a template too? It doesn't have to be word for word because he changed the wording and he didn't care. Or Oliver Cowdery changed the wording and Joseph didn't care. Now we can argue, and I don't know, did, did Joseph not notice? It's possible. Um, did Joseph read over it, say it means the same thing, close enough? That's possible. I mean, we certainly don't insist that you say, having been commissioned to Jesus Christ, I baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. If you're Swedish, nobody knows that, so you translate it. You get the meaning, and that, that's close enough. So there's something there to suggest the words were intended as a template. So the third example I think is interesting and, and again, to make this point, it's something to think about. I'm not saying right or wrong, but something to think about is we recently, thank you, Joseph Smith Papers, my heroes, um, they published a revelation given from Joseph to, oh, shoot, I uh, won't say Sidney Rigdon, but that's not right. Um, again, I quote it in the book, so <laughs> shoot. Um, okay. Oh, except for it's driving me crazy. Um, dang. Um, anyway, Joseph was going to marry this guy's daughter. No, okay, Whitney, I think. Okay. So he's going to marry his daughter. So he gives him, he writes him a letter and he says, these are the words that you'll use for the ceremony. So he gives him the sealing ceremony. But guess what? There's scarcely four words in there that are in our sealing ceremony. It's very, very different. I mean, you can see parallel ideas and that sort of stuff. If you go back and look at the sacrament prayers that Brigham was giving, you can see him following the general idea of the sacrament prayer. You know, he's using it as kind of a guidepost of what he's going to say, but he adds some extra stuff and, you know, um, he treats it like, you know, the, the priesthood manual where it says, when you bless somebody, this is what you do. You say, I confer the priesthood, I ordain right. you this office, in words of blessing, the spirit directs, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen, you know, and by what authority, that sort of stuff. It's all, it's all in a linear fashion. But if you mess everything up, but you get all the parts in the, you know, maybe the wrong order, but you get them all there, it's good enough. We'll just let it slide. The bishop's not going to say too much, right? So um, it, it seems to me that's kind of what he's saying. The sealing ordinance is a blessing to you, and it's supposed to be offering you greater blessings than not getting a sealing blessing. If you just went to a local bishop and said, hey, marry us for time, you're going to get a different ceremony. Um, you know, but it's, it seems to be offered more as a template. So um, Joseph Smith writes a, a letter, in essentially kind of a revelation form to, I believe it was Neil K. Whitney, who's going to marry his daughter. And he basically says, here's the sealing ceremony. But if you compare that sealing ceremony to what we have 
that Orson Pratt published the unpublished revelations of how it's done in the temple, um, not nearly the same. There's some basic guideposts there, but it's very, very different. Um, that was really challenging for me because <clears throat> as a, as I had a big portion of the reason I became fundamentalism is because of this doctrine. If you change the ordinances, change the priesthood. Well, um, that's a change, right? It is right. a change. I mean, it might be okay, but it is a change. So now I have to say, well, maybe there's some argument here. There, there is a good reason to say nothing important was changed. Just, you know, the prophet knows what's important to change, what's not important to change. Uh, at some point that loses all validity. It just sounds like stupid, you know. Right. The, the, the endowment used to take six to eight hours. Now it takes less than two. Nothing important got taken out. Right. You know. The brethren, the 12, went to Joseph and said, is there something we could do to shorten the endowments awfully long? And, and, and you know what Joseph's response was? Uh -uh. We have to do things precisely as God set them down. We can't be changing stuff. <laughs> you know? So, so, this, so we have these... this brings up some questions in my mind here now. Let, 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 me, let me ask this. I don't mean to cut you off, but mm -hmm. we have Brigham who is – it sounds like adding stuff more than not saying things in the in the sacrament. Um, in the baptismal thing, you pointed out that the ancients did it somewhat differently than what we do, uh, clothing optional, if you will. Um, and then we have this thing with the sealing ceremony. My question is this, because as I've looked at history, and, and I want to defer to you here because you're far more knowledgeable than I am about the progression of these things. How much of this is just Joseph receiving a little and then refining it? Likewise with Brigham, he was asked to systematize and organize the endowment. Um, yeah. It, I think it would be somewhat silly to assume that some words or something wouldn't have to be added to get quote the temple drama quite right um and, and so if, if if i'm understanding correctly here then we have to start making a decision on what's outside the pale of orthodoxy right and mm -hmm. then how do we decide where that line is where you are you are now not within orthodoxy when it comes down yeah yeah, and that's challenging on multiple levels. Um, so first of all, um, Joseph in teaching, in introducing this teaching, and I should have said this earlier, I mentioned it in the book, it's super crucial. I, I think um, from my perspective, I can see a lot of people not seeing it so, but Joseph started teaching this doctrine first because he was restoring the fullness of the priesthood. So he was teaching the people, there's no change in ordinances if there's no change of priesthood. If there's, if there's a change of priesthood, you get new ordinances. So I'm going to be introducing the endowment. I'm going to be introducing the fullness of the priesthood through the second endowment. And that requires a new priesthood. And he didn't have it. And he speaks about receiving it in the future tense. Even though he received his sealing power in 1836 from Elijah, he, he, he said, I'm going to get new priesthood. And he speaks about Elijah coming to restore a fullness of the priesthood in like 1840 or something, 1841. So I think we read about this in DNC 132, verse 45. DNC 132, verse 45, 
Um, and uh, I'll read it to you because I think it's glossed over, but it's super crucial. <clears throat> so he's, he's basically DNC 132 is kind of a blessing that he's receiving, right? And God's speaking right. to him. If you want to say it's Jesus, if you want to say it's the Lord, you want to say it's God, I don't care. But this is what verse 45 says. I have conferred upon you the keys and the power of the priesthood. Wherefore, I restore all things and make known unto you all things in due time. Joseph repeats this wording in the last charge over and over and over and says, and we find this, this is all over my book. Um, the, the Lord himself set his hand to establish the fullness of the priesthood on the earth in the last days. And that's what he means by restored or what he means by established. So he's saying here, how, where did Joseph receive the fullness of the priesthood keys? You know, that he says, I'm going to receive more priesthood. Then I'm going to, that, that's going to give me more ordinances. Elijah's going to restore it. Maybe Elijah restores it, but God seals it upon his head. Okay. And I think this is crucially significant um, for, for multiple reasons. But now I'm going to skip back to verse 5 briefly. And we gloss this over as if this is a casual statement. But I don't think this is casual at all. Um. All who will have a blessing at my hands. So we think, oh, it's being metaphorical. You know, you this is DNC 130, verse 20, right? Um, there's a law irrevo irrevocably decreed in heaven that if there's any blessing we can receive, it's because of your beating and commandment. That's not what it says. It says, you want a blessing at my hands? You want me to lay my hands on your head? And he says, you shall abide the law that was pointed for that blessing. And the conditions thereof were instituted from before the foundation of the world. So, um, I was reading that, and I understood. So he's saying DNC 132 is about how to receive your calling election. Sure, receive the sealing power from God Himself, and that's what it's about. Um, but uh, and, and so later, I was as I was researching DNC 132 for um, my DNC annotated, which I haven't finished that section, so um, that's a ways away. But as I was reading that, Brigham Young, when he introduced DNC 132, he doesn't say, hey, here's a revelation about plural marriage. Neither does he say, here's a revelation about celestial marriage. You know what it says? Hmm. Here's a revelation of how to be exalted. Interesting. This is teaching you how to be exalted. If you do read DNC 132, it talks about sealing power. It doesn't just talk about plural marriage. It talks about Emma's temptation. It, it specifically says, I have converted this priesthood upon you to restore for the last days. So, you know, there's more going on here than just how we usually read it. And uh, so at any rate, so um, this to me is a, is a really, really big challenge and a big problem for the church. Um, when was the last person that you said, Christ laid his hands upon my head and conferred upon me? this this blessing right right joseph smith in the teachings of prophet joseph smith um he he talks about this but in the words of joseph smith he says god himself ordained all of the prophets not some of them all of them so the apologist just says well that's because god you know god's laid his hands on all the prophets since joseph and so that's they just don't talk about it well that's nice um but if that's true, then guess what we would expect? We would expect there's no change to the second endowment. 
right? It's right. the exact same now as it was before. Right. Is that what we find to be true? No. Um, Berger's book, Mysteries of Godliness, um, has the whole chapter donated to him saying, I was asking the church leadership, do you guys do this anymore? And they could have said, none of your business. They could have said, that's too sacred. We don't talk about it. They could have said, you know, we're not talking to a historian about these things, but they didn't. What they said was, um, it's not essential to your exaltation. And it's really nothing more than just a blessing. And it's not necessary. So, you know, it's not really happening. And we also have in Hebrew J. Grant's time, uh, what's the brother's name? Some of my friends will make fun of me for not knowing. I'm sure they'll know. But um, one of the members of the 12 went to Hebrew J. Grant. He said, President Grant, like nine out of the 12 haven't had the second anointings. We were taught when I was young that this was essential for our exaltation, we could not be exalted without this ordinance. And nine of the 12 don't have it. Can I give it to them? And the Hebrew Jigrant's like, eh, eh, okay. And wasn't really excited about it. Well, guess what? One of the requirements for plural marriage was before then, you had to be plurally married. Yeah. So I think Grant's looking at it and saying, well, these people aren't really qualified and that's why they haven't received it. And, it's you know I, I don't I don't know he's a he's an, an enigmatic figure in church history, but at the end of the day, he's not really doing it. And and Borger further outlines in his book how many second anointings were given you know throughout 70, 80 years of history or something, and it goes from like one and eight in Nauvoo time received their second endowment um, to like three a year in like 1970s or something or 60s or whatever it was almost nothing um is that a change well the the ordinance itself is not being shown that it's a change but you're you're telling people you have to have this to be exalted and now you're saying you don't well that's a change of doctrine a change of principle which also we have teaching saying gospel principles don't change gospel laws don't change expectations of God for you don't ever change. And, you know, these things. So and there's there's some challenges there I address in the book too. But at the end of the day, that is kind of a change. But the bigger thing Berger's got from them writing him and saying, well, it's not essential for exaltation. It's just really a blessing. It's it's not just a blessing. No. If you read the, if, if you read the ordinance from the earliest accounts we have, there's more going on here than just a blessing. For one, there's a conferral of priesthood. Um, right. And, for two, there's other stuff going on. And for three, there's stuff that happens between the husband and wife after mm-hmm. after it's done. And for four, um, all of our Cowdery teaches and Joseph Smith, I, I mentioned earlier, teaches, uh, if you're going to have this priesthood sealed upon you, it has to be done by God. It's right. not done by your priesthood leader. It's not because President Nelson says, hey, I'm going to give this to you and I get everything. Um, you might have all the priesthood, but you don't have all the power. That only comes from the Lord himself. And, you know, that's that's important. So to me, at the end of the day, that's the most important one for me because I look at it and I say, okay, so the church has basically admitted we don't have it. Right. So a couple of years ago, people are saying mission president goes and says, I received my second money for the priesthood, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And other people are saying, me too. Um, I'm like, well, even if you did, they've admitted they changed it. Right. 
And here's the problem there. And this is to me the most profound issue that really hit me um, is, is I was originally learned this and as I've come to understand it better, Joseph says, I am going to introduce the second anointing, second down, whatever you want to call it. I'm going to have to receive more priesthood to give this to you. So he's teaching them about this. And he's teaching them in context of Paul teaching it in Hebrews chapter 7 in Galatians 3, where he's saying the early church only had Levitical, or God was going to give them Melchizedek, but then they only had Levitical, and they had to have more in the New Testament or else because it wasn't able to save them. And I will, I'll talk more about that in a minute. But he's, he's saying, I have to receive all this priesthood. Well, what is the second endowment? For those members of the church who don't know, Joseph taught, and very clearly Brigham taught and shared, and we have accounts of other people saying what Joseph taught, including apostates and, and members of the 12 and non-members of the 12, all alike. They all say the same thing. He gave, Joseph gave the fullness of the priesthood that could ever be bestowed man on earth. Everything that Joseph had is all that God ever gave any man and all that any man on earth will ever receive. Not only did they teach this, but they also taught that was same for all eternity. So if you're a mortal on an earth, the fullness of the priesthood is all you're ever going to get. So if you change that priesthood, what does it mean? You lost it. Right. Maybe, maybe you, I mean, you, there's a lot, I mean, you've got deacon, teacher, priest, you know, you've got, you know, elder, high priest, 70, 12, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you got fullness of the priesthood. So maybe you only go down to 12 apostles or something, you know, but you still right. have lost something. Right. And, and that's a big problem. So, you know, some people say, well, okay, well, we lost some priesthood, but we've got enough to carry on the kingdom. So it's good. Right. Right. Um, and that's where the second part of my book um, became more interesting to me. Um, so let me backtrack briefly to this idea in, in Hebrews 7 and Galatians 3, where Paul says, um, and, and Joseph Smith talks about this in teaching the prophet Joseph Smith, quoting the same scriptures as well. He says, um, Moses in, in, in the GST, I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses comes down and he's going to give the fullness of the gospel to the Israelites, right? Right. But they're worshiping a golden calf. He's like, dang, so he breaks the tablets. He goes back up. He comes back with 10 commandments, which frankly is a super lame compromise if you ask me. <laughs> If I say, what, what would I rather have? All the light knowledge of the endowment and the fullness of the gospel or the Ten Commandments? It's really a dismal um, deconstruction of the gospel. So he gives them this. Joseph Smith says, why did he give it to him? Well, because they, they, he says God gave it to the Israelites as a curse for their unbelief. And he further says the Aaronic priesthood never could bless it could only administer cursings. Now, in Hebrews 7, Paul says, well, we had the Aaronic priesthood, but, you know, it couldn't save men. Only the Melchizedek priesthood can save men. Joseph kind of pulls out of that, that section. And, and that's what Christ gave to them whenever he restored the gospel in his dispensation. You know? And so now they have the Melchizedek priesthood again. The early brethren and Joseph taught that Peter, James, and John received the fullness of the priesthood and their endowments on the Mount Transfiguration. So the Melchizedek priesthood is restored. Now they can save people. Now they can bless again. So this, this idea comes up again in Galatians. and says, 
if the Aaronic priesthood was able to save people, then why did we get more? Why did, why did Christ come? You know, it wasn't enough. We had to have more. So this is how Joseph is teaching. And, and, and there's this idea that there are laws under the Aaronic priesthood, and we're supposed to obey those. That's the Old Testament. But then those laws can only administer cursings. So we have to get the Melchizedek priesthood, which is the only priesthood that can bless, so that we can bless people and give to ceilings and all this sort of stuff, right? Okay. Um, we can actually now give people ordinances unto salvation and ordinances unto exaltation. So this is a huge part of the teaching about why he's getting new priesthood and why there's these new ordinances. It's all kind of interconnected. Um, so if we turn around and say, well, had the fullness of the priesthood, but now we don't get it anymore. Dang. Well, what about the apostleship? Well, we've got the Doctrine of Covenants. I think it's section 112. It's in the book, if I misquote that. But it basically says the apostleship will never be lost on the earth. It's not super clear. It's a little bit vague. But it seems stupid, frankly, from my perspective, for it to be there if that's not what it means. Um, but you could argue the point that's not what it means. So you could say, well, there's no clear promise the apostleship's going to remain on the earth either. So now what do we've got? We've got high priests. We've got Melchizedek priesthood. Well, we've got two very strong statements that the Aaronic priesthood will never be taken from the earth. And John promised that when he ordained Oliver Cowder and Joseph. And then when Peter, James, and John come and they ordain him to the elder um, and give them the Melchizedek priesthood, they give them the similar promise. This will never be taken again from the earth. So um, if, you, if you're like, well, you know, shoot, at least we got Melchizedek priesthood. But how far? Because Melchizedek priesthood, elder? Melchizedek priesthood, high priest, Melchizedek priesthood, apostle, Melchizedek priesthood, fullness of the apostleship, fullness of the priesthood. What, what does that mean? So now we've got that challenge. <clears throat> so this is where I got involved in the second half of the book. In the second half of the book, um, you know, we've got, um, if you look at most every restoration group, and maybe all of them, depends on if, how you want to argue, uh, Ordinances have all been changed. So they've lost priesthood, right? That's that's just what Joseph taught. Or the changes don't matter at all, um, which, again, I think is pretty pro problematic. Um, and, okay, don't, don't let me forget promises about the fullness of the priesthood. That's also in Joseph Smith's Actions and Insights, Last Charge of Transfiguration book. Um, that's, frankly, a better source for it, but my book, um, Changing Ordinances, Losing Priesthood, takes all the pregnant stuff, puts it all in one spot. So that's, that's how it's useful. Um, so when we look at the sacrament prayer, like you were talking about earlier, Brigham's complaining they're not using enough of the sacrament words because they're not having the meaning intended in sacrament prayer. When Joseph um, allows the change to the baptismal prayer or doesn't notice and it's just been perpetuated, it conveys the same meaning right? It's the same idea. And you could look at the sealing blessings that Joseph gives to Newell K. Whitney, compare them to what we have recorded from Orson Pratt and the Seer in the unpublished revelations, and say it conveys the same meaning, you know? There's an intention of retaining the teaching. But if you look at the changes to the endowment, and like, okay, so the covenant between the husband and wife is basically emasculated, eviscerated, maybe even reversed, 
um, with all the feminist revision stuff that was happening there. Does that change the meaning? Oh yeah, it yeah. very much changes the meaning. I, I don't think you could reasonably, intelligently argue it doesn't change the meaning unless you wanted to say, well, the early brethren were just showing his pigs and they didn't really get it and the true prophet knows better. Uh, right. In which case, like, well, it's changed anyways. <laughs> right. Joseph's the one that revealed that and Joseph is the one who said you can't change it, you're changing priesthood. I think that's problematic because that is not the same meaning. Right. Now, if you want to take out the preacher and say, well, you know, the preacher seems just offensive and it's anecdotal, um, oh, maybe we can get away with that. Maybe you say, well, yeah, wasn't that important. Um, it doesn't change your understanding of the plan of salvation on earth that much, you know. Um, but then we start looking at other things to say, well, you got rid of all the, all of the uh, um, penalties. Well, you still have the injunction that you shouldn't share it. Uh, yeah, but you know what the symbolism behind those penalties right. is? Because people don't. But when they do understand those things, I think there's massive significance to that. Yep, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and and then you go on with the, the signs and you know there's some changes there. And you go through the entire endowment and so much has changed. It's like, is the same meaning there anymore? Well, I don't know. Let's let's look at this objectively speaking. We have Brigham Young's endowment that says Adam is God the Father. And then you have a church position now that says that is a heresy and it's one of the deadly heresies and you should be excommunicated just for believing it. And some people get honorary with me about saying that, but I know people that were excommunicated for believing it, even though they promised never to teach it. Right. So um, can you say that you changed who is God and that retains the meaning. It, it just it, it gets hard to look at all of these things and seriously, honestly look at the changes in the endowment and say, yeah, it's it's pretty much the same. It teaches all the same stuff. You know, I've I've had way too many conversations with people in the temple about the changes in the temple. And some are like, I am so glad they got rid of that chauvinistic stuff. I am so glad they got rid of the covenant to the husband because he doesn't know what he's doing. He's such a dork and, you know, all these types of things. And, you know, they are happy about the changes because it what? It changes their behavior. It changes their understanding. It changes their belief. And it changes how they interact with their partners, their spouses. Yeah. And yeah. that is a fundamental change. You cannot argue that the meaning was changed. Why else were they griping about it and asking it to be changed? Right. right? So then you have, um, in, in connection with that, you have the brethren say, can't change the garment. The pattern was revealed by heaven. It's, it doesn't say, and we do have accounts of that argument, you know, proving that's that was what Joseph said. This was revealed to me by heaven, by an angel. Um, you know, and they said this was revealed by heaven, the exact pattern, but, but we're going to change it. Um, well, that's not a change. I mean, you know, it's it's completely mutilated from from what it used to be. And that's the exact word Joseph F. Smith used. He said you cannot mutilate or change the garment. So again, we're we're changing all these things. Um one more thing that I think is super interesting, and I don't know how far afield this is from what I was writing in my book versus just interesting for the podcast, but um when I read Devery Anderson's um 
the, the development of LDS temple worship. Um, I was heartbroken over it. It was really, really hard for me to read that. Um, I've been told, and I haven't met Debris. I, I don't know if this is true, but I, I've been told that he's happy about the changes. He's like, yeah, this is so glad the church has got prophet that's making these changes and getting rid of bigotry or whatever's in there, you know? Um, I don't know if that's true or not. It, he's He does a really good job of kind of keeping his personal opinions at a minimal in the footnotes and that sort of stuff. But it, it really was painful for me to read. And I noticed two things that maybe were of note that, that really struck me about it. And the first one was, Wilford Woodruff changes the law of adoption. And he says, Joseph reveals you are to be sealed to a living man who's got a fullness of the priesthood. And that's who you're going to be sealed to. And Wilford Woodruff says, no, nah, just get sealed to your dad. You know, that made sense when the church was restored, but now everybody's got a good dad. We'll just be sealed to our dad. Well, that doesn't work for a lot of people because their dads never received the fullness of the priesthood. Um, and they don't even care about that anymore. That that doesn't matter either. He doesn't have to be have the fullness of the priesthood. You can, you know, get sealed to him after he's an elder now. Um, but anyway, he made this change. And, and uh, he left room in his journal for the change to be recorded, but never recorded any revelation on the matter so i thought you know this is really interesting um because this is this seems like it was a source for a lot of changes for the now this is what i'm thinking when i'm reading the book as i'm reading the book i'm recognizing and, and and i didn't do this for every single thing that i saw but i'm recognizing that pretty much I would say 80, 90, at least 80%, that got to be more like 95% of all the changes that were ever made to the endowment can be traced back to that one change. And in the 1960s, um, some mathematicians came to Wilford Woodruff, oh, sorry, uh, I think it was David O. McKay, I'm not positive. And they said, you know, um, we're mathematicians and mathematically speaking, we're never going to get the temple work done. And they said, well, wait a second. How are we never going to get the temple work done? Are you saying we're not inspired in doing temple work? And I said, no, no, we're, you know, we're, we're followed brethren guys, but mathematically can't be done um, unless we shorten the endowment. And uh, so they started looking at shortening this, the length of the endowment so it could all be done. And, then they, and I understand that they also made it to where they put it for a while to where you could literally get your endowment, get baptized for the dead, and then you know, get your second anointing and then be ordained an elder and that sort of stuff too. And they're like, well, as long as it all gets done, doesn't matter what order. Um, that's fundamentally contrary to every understanding I've got of the purpose of the ordinance of the priesthood too. But at any rate, um, that was going on for a while. I don't know if it still is. Um, but as I, as I was looking at all these things, they're like, mathematically, it doesn't work. We got to shorten the endowment. So let's shorten this, let's shorten this, let's shorten this. And I'm looking at all these things, I'm like, holy flip, you know, um, all these go back to the law of adoption. Because if you're not doing ancestry work for all of your dead, they didn't used to do it that way. They said, pray about it and your ancestors will come to you and the ones who come to you do the work for them. That, that's a whole lot less work than what we do now. And if we do that and then we get sealed to a living person with the fullness of the priesthood, that then we don't have to do that work for our dad, you know, who maybe won't accept all of that. 
or a grandpa who maybe won't accept all that or on and on it goes. So all these changes can be changed or can be brought back to the law of adoption because it needs to be shortened, shortened, shortened. And so Heber G. Grant in his administration, he writes down in his journal that he's you know, contemplating getting rid of an ordinance, doesn't say which one, but presumably the second anointing because that's essentially what he did um, and changing some of the others to make it shorter. And then we compare that with Joseph when the 12 approach him and say, can we make the endowment shorter? He says, no. So either Joseph's right or Heber J. Grant's right. And that goes back to the follow the modern prophet. But for me, if you've got to pit the prophet against one another, there's a problem. And guess who's the one who warned us of the problem? It wasn't Heber J. Grant. It was Joseph. Right. And he said, don't do this. This is bad news, man. So I think that's fundamentally a problem. And, and two more quick points here. Um, one of the things that, that I read in Devery Anderson's book that really struck me is when they were, they were talking about that they did a street garment for a while that was different from the temple garment. And one of the temple presidents, as I recall, was asking, I think it was Joseph F. Smith, I'm pretty sure, sorry, Joseph Fielding Smith, hey, we've got this tradition that when we put on the temple garment, um, in, through the initiatory ceremony, um, that we do it right foot first and then right arm and then left foot first and left arm. Um, is there anything to this? Um, and and I, again, I could be getting some of the details wrong. I'm pretty sure it was the temple garment, not the street garment they were talking about. But the, the order is the important thing he was saying. We're trying to get rid of all the um, the innovations, he called it, that have snuck into our temple work. So that's why the temple president's asking him, is this an innovation or is this important? And Joseph Fielding Smith said, I see no significance and no importance to that. I don't know of any. And, and uh, um, I, I just, that really hurt me. I felt so badly because the symbolism behind that in, in receiving the full garment is very profound. And in, 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 let me just give you in terms of Hebrew symbolism. In Hebrew symbolism, your foot is the direction you're heading. Your right foot is your spiritual side. It is your, um, you know, the, the, the God side, the Godhead side. Your left side is the temporal side or the wicked evil side or things of the world side, right? So if you do your right foot first, it's saying, do the gospel first. Live you know, take care of your, teach your kids the gospel and teach your wife the gospel. And those things go first. And then, but that's just the direction. Your foot is first, right? So what's, what is that symbolism of the hand? Well, that's what you're doing. So you're moving your body in the direction of spiritual things. And then you're doing spiritual things first. Then what do you do? Now you move your left foot. You do temporal things secondary. You know, you move to do temporal things secondary. Then your hand is what you're doing. So you're doing temporal things secondary. Um, that's not symbolism that you can't figure out in life, right? Put the, put the first the kingdom of God, blah, 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 you know, that sort of stuff. But the fact that it's part of an ordinance uh, and then that's being taken away, I, I start looking at all those things and say, there's a lot of beautiful stuff that was left out because people didn't understand. Uh, how how cool is that? Is that okay? Does that not matter? You know, 
So here's here's the here's the big clincher for me on all of these things. So I can make an argument that all the changes to the temple endowment, whether in the church or in the in the Strangites or in the Cutrights or whoever's doing it, I, I don't know if Strangites do it or not, or did, I don't remember, but I know the Cutrights were and they changed it. Whoever's doing the changes, they can't be getting more priesthood. That's not possible. So any change is giving them less priesthood. So let's assume that all these changes are okay because they're just following the template and these other little things were just superfluous. It, you don't have to have the preacher saying he gives somebody $500. You can change it to 10,000 now. Maybe you might be more modern accurate. Maybe that doesn't matter. So we can make that argument, you know, but if that was the case, wouldn't you expect that we're growing closer to God than the early saints. Mm. Wouldn't you expect that modern day saints would know more about the plan of salvation than the saints in Joseph's day? This episode of the podcast is brought to you by DeseretFlag.com. I've said this before and I really mean it. Mormonism isn't just a religion, it's a culture. As such, it has its own vernacular and practices, but also its own symbols. And those symbols become even more important and prominent when you look back into our history. Perhaps one of the most recognizable symbols of Mormonism is the Deseret flag. This is the flag that I use as cover art in this podcast. This was also used for a good chunk of time during the Pioneer era in Utah. Now, today we have people who want to replace the existing Utah flag with some other progressive monstrosity. Well, I think it's damn past time that we start pushing back here a little bit in Utah. Our friends at Defending Utah are here to help you with that. Now, if you go to DeseretFlag.com, you can now purchase your own Deseret State flag. It's time here that we start making ourselves known and join the resistance against those who seek to rewrite our state's history. Go to DeseretFlag.com or check out the link in this episode's page show notes and get yours today. Can't get enough of the Mormon Renegade podcast? Well, good news. We're on Patreon and there's three packages that you can choose from. The first one, the Slightly Rowdy Package, allows you to hear the podcast without all those pesky commercials getting in the way. For those who want a slightly more in-depth experience, there's the Stirring It Up Package, where you can hear ad-free audio, ad-free video, and transcripts. Finally, for those who want to go full Renegade, that package is available too, where you can get everything in the previous two packages, plus an extra show where myself and Ben Winfield break down the news of the day from a very Mormon point of view. You will also get exclusive access to Renegade Chat, and on there you'll be able to talk to others about the show or whatever topics are on your mind. Go to Patreon today and get your exclusive content. And indeed, that's kind of what the church teaches. We know better. And, you know, they were just learning and growing, but we know better. But if you sit down with it, pick anybody, and, you know, just randomly take a sample of 100 saints from the whole planet, and maybe you get a scholar or two in there, that was whatever. And you say, okay, tell me everything you know about the plan of salvation. Let's map it out. You can write your little diagrams and all that sort of stuff. And then I want to compare how much you know. I'm going to ask questions when you're done. Um, for instance, what is the ceiling of a father to his daughter? How is that different than the ceiling of a husband to his wife in the eternities when we're making worlds together? Like, how is that different? Like, is the daughter ever make a world with her dad? Or is she forever lost to him? Or do they make it together? How does that work? Well, I've asked lots of Latter-day Saints that kind of question. Like, I never thought of that. 
And in fact, I don't think I've ever met a Latter-day Saint that I've met that was mainstream who could ever give me a decent answer on that at all. That's, that's pretty much, I never thought about it. I guess I'll, I'll do it together. Well, you just said, I guess. You know, you just said, I speculate. That means I don't know. The early brethren knew and the early brethren taught these things. They had doctrines that were way deeper on all of these issues with a lot more explanations. So who understood it better? Well, we do, because we know what we don't know. That's possible. We can be Socratic about it. But it doesn't ring true. When I meet brethren who are fundamentalists, who have studied the gospel as Joseph taught it, as Brigham taught it, as John Taylor taught it, they've got a vast array of material, way beyond anything in the church. And um, I think even whenever I was writing DNC 76, DNC Annotated 76, man, I was, I was loving it. I learned so much writing that. I mean, it's kind of more edited than writing, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I was constantly finding these quotes from the early brother and teaching stuff. And I was like, sweet. I've been teaching that to my family for 30 years or 20 years or whatever. I'm not quite that old, but uh-huh. <laughs> I'm teaching it for 20 years. I've believed it for 30 years. I never found a quote. And here's a quote where somebody's teaching that thing, you know, and it's happened to me over and over and over again. Just things the spirit teaches. Here's some of the early brethren teaching it. But go through the last 60, 80 years of conference talks. You don't learn any of those things. Not even remotely close. And, and so to me, if I'm looking and saying, okay, at the end of the day, I can argue that all these changes are template changes. They don't really matter. That's what most mainstreamers believe. But if I'm going to take that position, I've got two problems. One is mainstream churches admitted they got rid of the second endowment or they changed it and it doesn't matter. Um, to me, you can't just get rid of an ordinance. They no. got rid of rebound baptisms. They got rid of um, baptisms for health, which is not salvific, so you can say that doesn't matter. Um, they got rid of mother's blessings. You know, they, they're, they're dumping stuff and they're losing you know, priesthood according to Joseph. And if that was true, if that perspective was true, I would expect them to lose light and knowledge. And that's all I see. I don't see them. They've produced nothing new that didn't discount something earlier. For, for any revelation or announcement that they've made, nothing has added something that wasn't there before. They've only taken away what was there before. And that's the actions of God to the Israelite. You didn't believe, I'll take some away. Alma 12, 9 to 12 says, if you don't believe, I'm going to take it away. If you believe, I'm going to give you more. That's what I'm saying. If if we're actually progressing and getting more light and knowledge by rejecting the early brethren, then I then where's the more? Where's the better understanding? And it's not there. I mean, changes from from administration to administration. And when we do have request for ordinance changes why are those changes coming we don't like the garment why well you're making us wear it 24 7 which frankly i don't think is original either um but you're making us wearing 24 7 and we want to look like the gentiles so they say no we can't change the ordinances well maybe you already changed that but um at any rate they're complaining about god's gift to them that's how you're going to get more light knowledge um, you know, we've already given you. Yeah, in 2005, 
I received a letter as counsel for AUB saying that th these people were going to sue AUB and they were going to sue the church because there was nudity in the endowment, in the initiatory. And I looked at this and, I, and my, my client said, what are we going to do? I said, well, this is easy. This is, looks pretty, stu pretty stupid lawsuit by some snowflake. Um, you know, if, if people are upset about this, then you just disclose to them beforehand and you're good. Make sure a woman discloses it to the girls and a man discloses it to the boys and get it in writing, get it done before they go there so they can't say they were pressured. And it's good. Who's going to sue you for a stupid lawsuit anyways? But you know what I mean? Right. Um, it's dumb. And and they said, well, what do you think the church is going to do? And and I said, well, this isn't, this isn't my genius that came up with a solution here. This is a, any competent attorney would tell you that you just get a disclaimer first you have them sign a, a waiver of in, in knowledge and understanding what they're doing and then they can't later claim you humiliated me i did not because they were told beforehand this is this is like first grade law school i mean you know this is right. basic of the basics and then a couple of months later um i'm hearing that the church is changing the endowment they got rid of the nudity and they changed the ordinance so that it's all symbolic and you know there's no longer this is like way shorter uh, so you got somebody complaining about the ordinance and that's why you get a change. I don't like the preacher in there. It offends the Christians. So we take that away. Is that how you gain more light and knowledge with God by complaining about what he's given you? No, uh, it just doesn't. It doesn't sit right. You know, it doesn't feel right. You know, when I get a lot more light and knowledge is when I'm in the stage of saying, God, thank you so much for teaching me this. I am so grateful for all of this light knowledge and it's really changed my life and it's made me a better person and, and maybe I'm still a sinner, maybe I'm still a bad guy, but all this gospel light knowledge you've given me has made me a better person. It's made me a better dad. It's made me a better husband. And but right now I need more something. I can't, can't figure out how to overcome this problem. Can you teach me something? That's when you get light knowledge. But if you go to God and you're like, you know, you told me this and that didn't work. You told me this and that didn't work. And I'm frankly sick and tired of this life. It sucks. And I've got all these problems. And can you just tell me how to fix it? <laughs> you know, when I do that, and, you know, admitting that at some level we all gripe and complain, you know, I don't get an answer. Right. <laughs> Maybe you do, but I don't. Mm -hmm. I get it whenever I'm saying I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for what I've got. Please give me more. That's when you get more. Yeah. And, and that's the same thing with Joseph. Joseph saying, I'm reading the scriptures and it seemed to me that there must be something here. And so I'm praying and asking you, tell me more. And that's when God says, oh, you're grateful for what I gave you. I'll give you more. Just like any father. Your kid comes and says, mom made this stinky breakfast and I don't like it. Will you give me something? I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, you say, mom made this super yummy breakfast. Can I have some yogurt too? Sure. <laughs> right. You no. Know, that's <laughs> Yeah, it's just a gospel principle, and so looking for all these things—that's what I would expect. So now is the big conundrum. I mentioned earlier that we have quotes saying because the priest of ironic priesthood would stay forever on the key, on the earth. All right, so I had a friend, and I was just chatting with him, and, and my understanding was that his group of people had the second anointing. And so, in passing, talking about some priesthood issues, I said, "Well, you know, we've got." 
at, at least a really solid quote that the fullness of the priesthood will never be taken from the earth. And, you know, as I was read, writing Joseph Smith Doctrines and Insights, Last Charge of Transfiguration, I found probably you know, several of these, but at least one that was super clear. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. And we don't have a second anointing. And uh, I'd love to see the quote. So I thought, all right, shoot. This is something that I was planning on in, in my second, third volume on teachings of Joseph that aren't in the TGP, TPJS. I was going to include all these quotes because they're journals or reminiscences, um, talking about the priesthood not being taken from the earth. But now I'm thinking, um, you know, I, sorry. So they were just going to be, you know, randomly interdispersed, but I was figuring I would, in the index, make a special entry and collect all of them and make sure to point out where they were and put it all together. So I'm going to do this work sometime rather anyway. I'll just do it for this new friend. So I started compiling all this stuff. This is actually why I ended up writing the book. Um, I, I compiled all that stuff together and uh, I, I sent it to him and I was like, I've got more than that. I know I've got more than that. And so I looked deeper, found a bunch more, put them all together. And I had all these cross references and notes and, and uh, thoughts going through my head about this. And then I realized I've pretty much written the book. I just need to stitch it together now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's kind of how, how it worked. But the whole key that, that that got me pondering about this, and I never I never addressed this clearly in the book, because I'm I'm not about telling people what to do with their lives or shoving stuff down their throats. Um, I just present stuff. You can think about it, make of it what you want. But my question mark here was. Joseph says, if you change the ordinances, change the priesthood, which means if you change the ordinances, you lose priesthood. Right. But then he also says, this, the fullness of priesthood will never be taken from the earth. So somebody's got it. Right. It's out there. Maybe several somebody's got it. From my rubbing shoulders with people and guesstimating, I guess there's less than three dozen guys on the planet that have it. Um, but they're out there. And you can receive those blessings if you really want them, if you're looking for them, if you're trying to find them, if you're whatever. Um, but when you find them, you, you, then you got to discern, right? Right. Well, I, you know, like I've, I've heard anecdotally a guy who says, well, you know, I give second anointings while smoking a cigarette to kind of put, make a point, you know? I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't know if I really receive a second anointing from guys while smoking a cigarette, something about that feels wrong. You know, right. Um, and I, I, I get what he's trying to teach. And there's maybe some truth there, but it doesn't ring true to me that that's the proper way to receive your second. No. So, you know, so you still you have to exercise discernment. You have to think about it. And at the end of the day, you got to look and say, who hasn't changed the ordinances? And, and maybe then you have to say, well, who's changed them the least? Who's who's kept the template at least, you know? Um, and, and go through that piece of things. And the search is, is kind of tricky. Um, and it, I used to see it a lot more black and white, and it was a little bit more clear to me because, you know, if immersion is a change, then dang it, changing the wording in sacraments a change, right? Right. Um, so now I have to look at it a little bit more carefully and nuanced. 
but still, at the end of the day, I, I come to the same conclusion. I, I can't conclude that the people who have changed the ordinances the most are the ones with the most priesthood, um, unless they're growing and giving more light and knowledge and taking away pieces that really don't matter much or are, are inconsequential, but instead they're taking out massive pieces of stuff that are hugely important, including covenants now, you know? Right. Um, and those people as a whole don't understand the gospel better than the people of Joseph's day. Sorry, they, they don't. Any Anybody who bothers to, to spend some time reading uh, on these topics will know that. And, and frankly, I mean, even if you read DNC 76 annotated, which isn't my opinions and thoughts, by the way, for anybody who doesn't know, it's just those are the early brethren teaching cross-references um, to the scriptures and interpreting them. It's the early brethren interpreting, not me. Um, man, they give a whole boatload more information than I've ever heard in general conference. Like, right. By a hundred times. It's amazing how much more um, they offered. So, um, so it, anyway, you just, you have to look at all of those details with a little bit more nuance than before. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a challenging teaching. It's, it's challenging on multiple levels and, in, in, in even like in my position, I'm saying, well, Joseph restored the baptism, but, you know, it, is it possible that Joseph didn't restore part of that ordinance the way it was supposed to be done because he grew up in a Victorian age when people couldn't accept it and the church never would have started, never would have ticked off the ground? Maybe, you know. I mean, so it, it brings up a lot of questions in my mind now that, that weren't there 20 years ago when I was first learning these things and first starting to study them. So if if I might be so this bold here, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think, at least for me, <laughs> when I look back at stuff, I tend to look at kind of, I, I look at it with this idea of the waters are purest at their source, right? And, and yep. certainly from yeah. a latter-day tradition, those waters start with, with Joseph Smith and then trickle down, right? Yeah. In your mm -hmm. opinion, I, I feel exactly the same way. What's that? I said I view it the exact same way. Okay. Yeah, I, I think the the fountain is purest at the at its source. Okay. All right. So if if that's the case, then is is the safest assumption as as we analyze these changes is to see how they square with what was originally revealed. And then in the absence of when they're originally revealed, right? Because we don't have a ton like on the endowment on, on what Joseph was doing exactly with those other brethren. And if I'm not mistaken, the ordinance yeah. really wasn't written down. Um, it was kind of given to men to memorize certain parts of it and then later was compiled. Is that correct? I don't think we really know that. I think we 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 guess that. Okay. Um, I would love to know the answer, but um, from the records we've got, I I don't see any evidence that we've got a written record of what Joseph did. But at the same time, Joseph was really meticulous about record keeping. Right. Uh, on multiple multiple levels, I have a hard time thinking that he said. Brigham, we don't have this quite right, but you know we figured out in, in 
you'll, you'll get it together and add three hours worth of teachings. Right. You know, I, I just, it's possible uh, on a theoretical basis. I don't see, I don't, Joseph didn't, wasn't like that. No. I, mean, I don't see him being like that. He took such good records. It was super important. He says dozens of times in the last charge, I'm just completely crawling out of my skin. I'm really stressed. I've got to teach you guys all these things, you know, and, and, and he had meetings with the 12 where he's teaching them all these things about the fullness of the priesthood. So it's possible he delineated all those things there, but didn't write them down, but, but they were keeping notes and he maybe instructed them to or something, but to have none at all, it just, it doesn't square with what I, what we know about Joseph to me. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing that, that I tend to look at, and again, I'm willing to be wrong on, on, on this, right. I tend to make Joseph kind of the ultimate authority here when it talks about this. So, while we certainly can look at things like apocryphal records and those sorts of things and say, okay, so we have record. And, and I want to say that, that I know that there, I did have a friend who converted to Judaism. And one of the things was a ritualistic bath in, in living waters, so to speak. So not in a font where, where you would bathe essentially Mm -hmm. naked to, to enter, enter that. Um, if yeah. if that's and the Muslims do that as well, right? Right. However, who's to say that getting naked wasn't to change as well? Right? Did it start with having yeah. clothes on, and then, and then later was changed to no, we should really do this without clothes on, and at some point, Drew. Don't you have to be able to draw a hard line somewhere and say, okay, this is what I'm going to to hedge to, so to speak, right? And so when I think of restoration, mm-hmm. I think of a, a bringing forward what was lost. And that's why I tend to look at Joseph Smith and say, okay, I'm going to stop and end it here, right? This is, this is kind of my guy. Yeah. But... And and I think you kind of alluded to it before, but and I want to point this out that I don't see a lot of places where the Lord takes away a whole bunch, right? We have we have uh, Exodus where where you know Moses comes down and it was like like you were saying we're gonna get you know not give you the higher law but the lower law. So I tend to look at Revelation as being. And again, correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm willing to be wrong on this because Joseph does say <laughs> we believe we believe in everything the Lord has revealed and things he has yet to reveal in the articles of faith. I'm butchering that, right? Yeah. Um, so I do think that there can be further revelation, but I feel like that revelation has to add to what we have and not take away. Yes. And and that's where I kind of fall on this. And and the other thing would be is does it square with what's already been revealed as well, right? I don't think a revelation that completely yeah. overturns something Joseph did is is within that pale of orthodoxy, and that's where I tend to to run into issues. Is I, I think yeah. I think there is more revelation out there to be had, but it has to square with what's already been revealed. It can't conflict necessarily. Right. I and I agree in theory, 
Um, however, um, anytime we've had a clarification of doctrine, it's also seemed contrary to things that were there before. Let me give you an example. When DNC 76 was introduced to the saints, a lot of them were really upset about it because they said, we've been taught and the scriptures say, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. And now you're telling us that these guys that were going to go to hell might go to celestial kingdom or they might go to terrestrial or they might go to celestial, but all these places are good places. You know, this isn't like hell as we know it. And just said, well, hell is actually um, a temporary place, except for, for the sons of perdition. And so most people are never really going to stay in hell anyways. And in DNC 19, we have um, the Lord clarifying and saying, well, uh, by eternal and everlasting punishment, I didn't mean that they would last forever. I meant it was eternal in nature, not in duration. That felt like a fundamental reversal of 2,000 years of Christian history. So um, while I agree with you, it doesn't, when, when you get to specific details of doctrines, it really does look contrary a lot of times when, when Joseph is revealing something that's lost and being restored. And because of that, I think when you see, um, you know, Brigham says he didn't teach anything but Joseph taught. So I take him at his word for the most part, with some similar nuanced challenges there. If he's revealing something that is a little bit further than what Joseph taught, but that he just had a better understanding of, those details might also look a little bit off compared to what we understood, you know, how we interpreted Revelation or scriptures before. DNC 19 verse 7 is one of my favorite scriptures for this reason. This is the one I was just talking about, everlasting punishment, where he talks about that and says, that's not what I meant. But then he says, some scriptures are more express than others, meaning they're more clear, they're more detailed. Sometimes the prophets just kind of mouthed off something. They didn't say it very well. And it looks like they were saying one thing that wasn't really clear, but this scripture is more clear than others. And so that's the one you hold on to for this particular teaching. Um, at, at any rate, so... So I agree very much. You go to the source, closer to the fountain, the better. Um, and, and it should square with what's been revealed before, but it squares if we have a, an open mind and we're really careful about how we're reading and interpreting things. Um, because we all of us have habits and traditions of how we interpret things. And a lot of times they're bad. They're, right. they're not well thought through and they're problematic, but we think we really know it really well. You know, I should have been more clear there. What I was saying in terms of oh, I don't think so. <laughs> just, <laughs> think the fine, but... just the restoration era, right? So the teachings of Joseph, uh -huh. right? And from a Mormon context, yeah. I would expect to see some things that fly in the face of quote traditional Christianity. Because you did have Joseph coming and restoring the God, you know, the the religion of Jesus. And so um, I would expect to see some yeah. conflicts there. But with within the restoration going forward from Joseph Smith, I tend to look at it and say, okay, any new revelation that, that is is given, I think, has to square somewhat, not somewhat, pretty well with what Joseph taught. Um, so 
if, if yeah, if I wasn't clear there, I wanted to make sure I was. Um, when well, I th- I think clear. I think it's just common a, a, a common issue that that comes up a lot, and and even with your clarification, I again I agree, but we we do have a talk of Joseph saying you know people say I have plural wives, but I, I'm looking in the audience, I can only see one. Well, he had seven in the audience at the time, at least. <laughs> And I think he had like 38 wives at that time that he said that, um, you know, so we've, when we're looking at history, um, we do have some challenges of what Joseph taught publicly versus privately, because we do have conflict. I believe it was Benjamin F. Johnson. Uh, could have been Clayton, but um, at one point they, he said, Joseph, if I live plural marriage and I get caught, what's going to happen? He says, well, I'll give you a, severe public chastisement and when the water settles down I'll you know we'll reinstate you in good standing um you know so e- even then we've we've got to be pretty well read in in each of the doctrines to to make sure that it's really squaring because we we do have challenges like that and further we've got words like intelligence and spirit that were used interchangeably and incorrectly multiple times um, by Joseph as he was learning and understanding that principle. And the term salvation was used to mean both exaltation and salvation in the celestial kingdom and salvation in the telestial or terrestrial kingdoms, which did he mean in the passage? It's not always clear, but we always assume it means celestial kingdom, but maybe not so. You know, when Christians say, if you believe you will be saved, yeah, telestial kingdom at least. Terrestrial kingdom maybe next. Doesn't say celestial kingdom, but they don't have that perspective, so they can't read it that way. But that's how the term was used by Joseph, but not consistently. So even then, I, you know, again, I'm I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I totally agree with you. It's just one of those things that I've thought about over time. I'm like, dang, it's still it's still a challenge. You know, there's right. there's very little black and white restored gospel. Right. Um, it's when you get to the details, I should say. Obviously, there's strong black and white. Atonement's real. Priesthood's important, you know. Um, but when you start nailing down these little details, there's so many rabbit holes to go down. <laughs> yeah, and and one of the things I learned early on when I became a fundamentalist was, um, you you almost have to for your own sanity, at some point, hedge somewhere. Right. Hedge on, you know, for me, it was Joseph Smith. Right. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to hedge there because if you don't, yep. you will start. It, it's like the guy who. Finds one conspiracy is true and then he doesn't trust anything ever again. Right. And then, it's yep. just, you know, going <laughs> down. Every rabbit hole, he, yeah, you go from from holy crap. Maybe there was a second shooter in the Kennedy assassination to now the earth is flat. Right. And and so for your own sanity, you almost have to to peg to somebody. And I always felt like Joseph Smith was the strongest stake we had to, or the strongest anchor to to put to. For someone who's getting yes. into this, right? Who who's discovering these changes, what kind of sources would you direct them to when it comes to changes in ordinances and changes in priesthood? Because that's really what this is about, right? Like, don't get me wrong. I love the doctrine, the Adam God doctrine. I feel it puts me in proximity to deity. I love it about that. I love the principle of plural marriage. I feel like that's a godly principle that has certainly helped me become a better man. 
<laughs> but when you whittle it all down, it really does kind of start with the ordinances and the priesthood. So you you have your book, which I can't recommend enough. Anything you write, I can't recommend highly enough. But when it comes to to other source material, where where do you normally direct people to go when they want to start doing their own research? Um, Werger's Mystery of Godliness is number one. Um, I think he did a fabulous job. Uh, I, I haven't read that, frankly, in probably 20 years or so. Um, I refer to it once in a while and look things up. Um, but I thought he did a really good job in, in, in objectively just saying it, it was changed. So that's, that's, to me, that's the number one place. Number two is Deborah Anderson's um, The Development of LDS Temple Worship. That's the third book in a series that starts with Joseph Smith's Quorum of Anointed and then the endowment companies and then the LDS, um, History of LDS Temple Worship. <laughs> Sorry, glitched there. But that's, that's a, both of those are indispensable. The latter, of course, is only temple stuff. Um, so, you know, that's, that's maybe a, a limitation there. Mysteries of Godliness really focuses on temple stuff too. Um, and, and, you know, I, I haven't read that in, in so long. I don't remember the tone of, of the book, if it's kind of anti-Brethren, if it's objective. But I think it's either very deferential toward the Brethren or fairly objective, or I would, wouldn't remember it so highly. Because <laughs> gotcha. I, I tend to get offended when people are ripping on the Brethren. Um, and and the third source is not published, but it's the St. George Temple Minutes. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I mean... Uh, people I know, I just say, e email me. I, I'm not begging for a hundred emails right now, but <laughs> um, I just tell them, email me. I'll get you a copy. I don't remember where I got mine. I've seen it from time to time when sharing sources with other scholars. I, you know, they'll, they'll send me a new copy with new formatting, but it's the same stuff. Uh, um, it, it's, it's, it can be a little bit dry. It's letters from somebody to somebody else and that, you know, people saying, Today we had a temple meeting and this is what we discussed. And later on it says somebody asked whether or not baby needs to be endowed. They died before they were eight. And one says yes. And later they say no. And later they say yes again. <laughs> you know, things like this. Um, but I think that was very telling. One of the most interesting details in that book that I recall was somebody was asking, um, how much do we wear the garment? And he said, well, we wear the garment when we want to receive revelation. So wouldn't you want to be ready to receive revelation at any moment of the day? So you should wear it 24-7. And personally, I think that's where the innovation came from, that they wore the garment 24-7. Mm. I don't think that Joseph, Joseph never taught that. He taught them not to wear it when they were in danger for wearing it, which you could say is an anomaly. Fair enough. Um, but he also didn't wear it when he was going to the martyrdom, knowing he was going to be martyred. Again, you could say it's an anomaly. Um, but when Benjamin S. Johnson in 1904 writes to, I think it was George S. Gibbs in the, the first presidency, they said, was Joseph wearing the garment at this time? This time, And his response wasn't, well, there was this anomalous situation or there was an exception to the rule. He says, have you ever been in Nauvoo in the middle of the summer? You know, are you kidding me? What idiot is going to wear that long sleeve, long pant like thing in the middle of late July in Nauvoo? It's too hot. You can't breathe. You can't move in it. 
you know that's kind of i'm i'm adding to his words a little bit but that's his point you know right um so i, I instantly think that's an innovation and that's the media saint george temple minutes is, is it's it's an amazing source so many good things in there um and uh, uh th those are the three primary sources I'm, I'm sure there are articles out there that are really good i've seen some on different topics that looked really interesting and skimmed over them and said wow that's that's really cool but um i i, I kind of quit looking at all of the actual changes that were made um when i when i read debris book um because it it, it it did it just it was super depressing to me it made me right. just feel awful right um it wolf of woodruff makes abundantly clear and i think some of the other brothers were similarly or equally clear these ordinances aren't just for this earth you don't go make another earth and give different ordinances they taught right. all the gods through all eternity use the same ordinances and you know even if you're looking at a template format as opposed to specifics um i, I don't think we've got any business changing those and right. and uh I think especially at this time of our dispensation, even if somebody is inclined to want to change something that maybe is okay to change, I, I, I won't do it anyways. I read the sacrament word for word every time I give it to my family. Um, I know I don't have to. I hate King James English. I think that's a destroyer of, of many of our understandings. Um, but I, I use that King James English just as it's found in the NC20, even though I know Brigham didn't do it. Um, because I, I, I just really want to retain that kind of concept with my kids. And I, I think if we're going to err, I'd rather err by being too strict and insisting upon a detail that maybe wasn't necessary rather than being the one necessary to say, oh, well, you know, Drew's family like quit having a priest about here because he started changing crap, you know. Right. And put that on somebody else's shoulders. I don't want it on mine, you know. Right. Um, at any rate, so those are the resources I would I would suggest people read. My book is just kind of like what we discussed today to say this is what Joseph taught about it. This is what he said was okay, and maybe not okay, and this is what's unclear. Um, but the, he also taught don't change principles. He also said don't change laws. He also said don't change the gospel at all. They're all eternal, but then we have pieces of them that aren't eternal and that are changed. So, you know, um, I, I address issues like that. And, and let me just throw out one, one quick example of that, that I, I, I throw these things out for people to think about and say, how do I reconcile that? So we recognize Old Testament laws were changed by Christ, right? He says so. I've come right. to not destroy them, but to fulfill them. And then he says, don't do this anymore. Do this instead. Don't do this anymore. Do this instead. Well, then we're in the Temple Endowment. We're told to obey laws as contained in the Old Testament. <laughs> well, okay, so I'm supposed to, if if I if I'm in the army, then it's okay for me to go kill somebody, steal his wife, and take her home with me. As long as I shave her head, cut her nails, and make her put ashes on and, and I don't touch her for 30 days, it's okay. You know. That's Old Testament law. I'm supposed to follow that still. Um, those changing laws are part of the unchanging ordinance. So that can mean one of two things. One, it can mean you're expected to figure it out. 
and, and know which ones are superseded and which ones aren't. Or two, you're supposed to follow it anyway. <laughs> so right. either way, there's a big challenge there. But understanding that challenge has me approach it differently, right? Right. So when, when you put this book out, what do you hope it does for people when they pick it up? Let's say the average mainstreamer, when they pick this book up, what do you hope they get out of it? Um, you know, usually, uh, the, this has been a challenge for me. Um, usually when I write a book, I'm like, this is what people are going to learn from this. And this is what I, you know, when I wrote Joseph Smith's Doctrine and Insights, Last Tried Transfiguration, I thought this is what people are going to learn from this. This wasn't an isolated meeting. This was not a council of 50 charge. This was given at least a dozen times on from the hundreds and hundreds of people. And our understanding that this is proof of Libertinism is false. Maybe there's something there. I'm not discounting all their claims, but that's not good enough. We've got too much information. So that's kind of what I expect people to pull out of it. And plus, I would hope that they would read and see that Joseph was preparing the saints to follow the 12. And, and you know, that transfiguration, all those accounts are very faith-promoting. That would help strengthen people's testimony and restoration through the entire Brigham Young administration. That's something I'd hope to get out of that. This book's different. This book, um, I, I, I would love to be able to say, um, hey, Here's where you can go get your second line. But I don't, I don't feel like that's, that's my place, nor is it the purpose of the book. Right. At the end of the day, that's what we should be striving for. And, and I would hope it would at least awaken in people to look at whatever organization they're at and say, well, have they changed things? Uh, pretty much, yeah, somewhere. How much? Is it enough? Is it not enough? Um, the the second anointing ordinance itself encourages you to give that ordinance to other people. Is your organization stingy about it? Or are they trying to perpetuate the priesthood on the earth? And I, I, I grant you don't want to give it to people unworthily. You don't want to be throwing it on people who are schmucks that don't really care and aren't going to live the gospel and get get stuck in the head that they're awesome now and start doing crazy crap like a lot of fundamentalists do you know you know there's that too but do they understand the injunction that they're supposed to be preparing people and giving that ordinance to them um that's an important part of it then that should be part of their teachings and if it's not you know I, at whatever level people are at i just hope that they would look and say joseph's either a prophet or he's not if he's a prophet he's warning me something here is warning us. And Paul warned the Jews too. That's where Joseph got this teaching from. Um, and is there anything to these warnings? And I think if we look at our history, we say, uh, fortunately, yeah. Isaiah prophesied our generation would be changing the ordinances and the earth would be cursed and devoured because of it. Um, do I blow him off too? Jesus says, greater the words of Isaiah, follow him, he'll listen to him. Well, except for that, he, he was wrong. You know, the modern-day prophets know better. Um, I would hope people would at least stop and think about it. And if you come to the conclusion, 
well, I think these are just template changes. It's the templates there. It's okay. Um, well, I hope you're at least a little bit better off than being lazy about it and not caring at all, you know. Um, but I, I hope it just opens eyes to people and, and get them to think deeper about these things. I also think at the same time, um, I think it's important to recognize that Joseph in giving us these warnings also gave us hope. This priesthood, the fullness of the priesthood won't be taken. So where are you going to get it? Where are you going to find it? Well, pray about it. Find out. But at the end of the day, he promised us it would be here and it would be available for people who really want it. And I think that's important for people to know, It'll especially a lot of new fundamentalists, you know, you, you're like, oh, you're mad at the church for a while, which I don't think is healthy, but I understand. I get it. Um, but, you know, they're mad at the church for a while and they're like, well, I got to find a guy with, I got to find one guy with the keys. And they look around and they don't find it. And they're like, shoot, like, I got to find two guys with the keys. Like, what's going on here? And, you know, they go through all these angsty, stressful transition periods where they're trying to figure this out because it's everything's contrary to what they've been taught in the church. But then they find all these things substantiated by the early brethren. And the deeper you dive in the early brethren, the more substantiated you find all these fundamentalist teachings, broadly speaking, you know, because obviously we contradict each other, depending <laughs> on which group you're in or whatever. But I think a fundamental important part of the gospel is that God is not a God of despair. He's not a God of, well, you get sucky in the deal, so tough luck. Um, he's not a God of, well, um, I, I gave the opportunity to Joseph, and he promised everybody to keep it, you know, they, they would have these, but you're not going to get it. You know, God's not like that. He's given a promise through Joseph that fullness of priesthood would not be lost from the earth. Why? To give you hope. Right. You know, maybe it's maybe you're not going to find who's got it right away. Maybe you're going to join a group and think they're just awesome. And then you find out how corrupt they are and you got to deal with that. And then you go somewhere else, you have the same problem, whatever. Maybe that's your journey. That, that happens to a lot of people. And frankly, you know, it's a difficult time to be a follower of Joseph. And, and so if that, but if that's you, then at least have, that knowledge of hope that he offers in those prophecies and get a testimony of it, pray about it, find out for yourself, you know, and once you've got that, you got something to hold on to. And then you just look around and say, who's changed the priesthood ordinances the least, or that looks like they kept the template <laughs> as much as you possibly can. I don't know how else to describe that, but there, there are standards he offers to hold on to. Um, there's one more message in the book that, that I'd like to throw out there that I haven't discussed at all. Um, and that's this. There's a, a, a book called The Gospel of Kylity. It's got its own controversy because what in fundamentalism or Christianity doesn't have controversy? Um, but it purports to be written by the original apostles gathering together and saying, let's remind each other of everything Christ ever taught us. And um, there's something in there that, that, well, there are a few teachings in there that have really impacted me personally. And it goes back to this idea of, of um, God gave the Israelites the, the 
Old Testament laws as a cursing to them. And further, um, Christ, in, in, in the Gospel of Kylody, it says it even better. In, in, in Mark chapter 10, Pharisees come and Sadducees come to, to Jesus. It's Pharisees, whatever. It was the religious guys come to him. I can't, I think it was just Pharisees. And they come to him and said, Moses said that we could get a bill of divorcement. But what do you say? And it was a trick question because um, they're, they're trying to trap him in it. And in the Gospel of Kylody, it answers the same as Mark chapter 10. And it adds this. He says, what says the spokesman of God on this issue? And he's talking about Moses. Um, and they said, well, he, he allowed us divorce. And Jesus responds, he says, he allowed this because of the hardness of your hearts. In the beginning was not so. Then he quotes Genesis 2, which is a rabbinical technique to quote the earliest source he possibly can. That proves your point. But, but basically, he supports Moses. He says, yeah, Moses taught you falsehood. Moses gave you a bad law. And he condemns in the Gospel of Kyla the extra. He's like, you know, any type of divorce, whether it's formal, formal, blessed by a priest or not, doesn't matter. You leave it alone. Don't you touch that. If they're committed to it, let them go for it. And, and uh, you know, so he, he says, um, so Moses gave this law that I don't approve of on some level. I'm telling you it's wicked. But he says he gave it to the hardest of your hearts. And then he says um, a couple a couple different things. In one place he says um, marriage laws are given unto men because of their failure to love and to empathize. And then he says in another place, all the marriage laws are given because men are in their fallen condition. And also there are three other scriptures of doctrine and covenants that modify that. So, you know, you can argue all day long about it, but we, we have this attitude that this is what the scripture says, you know, and we're, we're okay with divorce because Jesus said it's okay in Mark chapter 10, you know, he, he condemned it. And, and, and so we, we tend to be pretty, dogged about things like that and say well joseph taught this right well what i see christ teaching here is is not to say everything's relative and joseph kind of taught that too right he said what god says is right in one circumstance might be wrong in another and you know whatever god tells you to do is right that's not my point either what he's saying there is i'm giving you light and knowledge according to what you're willing to receive i gave mm. you dnc 42 on consecration you weren't willing to do it, so I gave you tithing. You weren't willing to do that, so I gave you lower law. <laughs> you know, I gave you a piece of it or something. Um, so he's, he's trying to say, look, I give you laws to help you to progress in light and knowledge until you're perfect in light and knowledge. That's Alma 12, verse 9 to 12 again. And it, But in this verse, he's saying, don't say it's right or wrong. Don't assume, this is how I read it. Don't assume I gave you the highest law on this matter. Assume this might be a stepping stone to a higher law on this matter. And that if I were to reveal more to you, then you would have even more light and knowledge and more reasons to try and live differently. Right? And, and I think this is super crucial. In the book I mentioned briefly, if the only if the law was given first, then you have people be like, 
well, Dave, I see that you paid according to your net value, and I really think you should be paying according to your gross income, right? And then you have somebody else say, well, Brother Dave does pay according to his gross income, but that's, he's supposed to be doing it on his surplus or his increase. Well, I don't think he's doing it right. And we bicker and gripe about all these things, right? Right. Um, and and we're, we're trying to live perfectly according to this law. But isn't that missing the whole purpose? Tithing isn't about that you get this certain percentage. Tithing is, if you do it the way Joseph taught through Edward Partridge, if you do it on, on increase, not income, it's a tiny amount. What's the purpose? Well, you pay tithing, you feel good. Like, brother so-and-so needed that money, and now he's got some, and he's not hurting now. And I love brother so-and-so, and I'm glad that he's doing better now. And I contributed to that because I pay tithing and I feel good. Well, that's, that's what it's for. Right. Right. Now, are you ready to consecrate now? You want to give more of your money now to more people and, and bless more people. That's the purpose of tithing. It's a stupid law by itself. It's maybe not even an eternal law. It's a stepping stone to consecration. You know, if you're consecrating, you're paying more than tithing. You don't need tithing. Right. You know, you're automatically, you're not calculating anything. You're just saying, I've got all this extra money and I'm going to give it away to whoever needs it. And you're not worried about what the percentage is and how many points it's going to take off of your tax deductions and crap. You're just doing it because you love your fellow man. And, and so his point there in there is saying, look at this law, not as the end all be all and bickering about the details. Look at it as a stepping stone to your exaltation stepping stone to your salvation and ask if Christ were going to reveal more to me, how would that change how I live? Well, how, how would that make me better? And that's a totally different attitude. Now I'm not saying, well, brother Dave pays on gross. And I think that's really pedantic. You should be paying on net, you know, and, you know, get rid of those stupid pharisaical attitudes about the gospel and look at it more is I'm trying to improve you as a person. Another thing the Gospel of Kylie points out that's similar to this that I really love is um, he's got multiple people coming to him for advice. And one guy, he says, um, I want you to stay and keep your business because you employ a lot of people. Another time he says, um, sell all that you have and follow me. Another time he says, well, do you give charity or do you hire people? He says, well, I do charity. He says, well, increase, do more charity. And he's given all these guys different advices. And one, one, one of the disciples says, Lord, you tell people different things. And, and he says, well, every wealthy person has two responsibility to either give a lot of charity or to hire people because he's taking care of other people, helping other people feed their families. That's the, the whole point, you know. But he right. says, I give different laws to different men because some men are good businessmen and can make more money and, and, and hire more people. And some guys make a boatload of money, but they don't like supervising people. So, okay, you don't reinvest in a new business. Just give the money to charity, you know? And so he's tailoring those things so that they live. What's the principle here? It's consecration, right? Right. He's, he's not saying the way for Dave to consecrate the same as brother so-and-so and so and same as Drew. Everybody's got a different talent, a different way of consecrating. Um, 
I'm broke three quarters of my life. I'm I'm better consecrating my time, talents, and efforts. <laughs> you know, go to you want right. somebody to consecrate some money, go to so and so. He's got a lot of it. Um, and 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 so I think that attitude about the gospel really affects how you view people around you, your relationships, and and uh, I think that's something throughout this this whole. As I've been writing this book, it's really it's really been kind of deeply impressed upon me the more I see it. Um, there are eternal principles and there are mortal principles. There are eternal laws and there are mortal laws. And if you don't know which is which, then just obey them to the best of your ability and ask. <laughs> right. But if you can start seeing and perceiving the gospel as God giving direction, not of, it's an eternal principle that when you, get in a war with your neighbor that you can kill a guy and then take his wife, shave her head, take her home. She's yours. You know, that's not an eternal principle. That's a stepping stone for a cultural group of people who had that legitimate question. What do we do? When we find, you know, extra women now that we've conquered people, we let them starve and die or we take them home. And he says, well, in your culture, this is probably the best thing to do. Leave her alone for a while. Give her time to grieve you know, and, and treat her. So uh, cut her hair off. So she doesn't look enticing to you and, you know, put her in sackcloth and ashes. So she looks ugly to you. So you leave her alone for a month, give her time to grieve her husband. Jeez. You know, and then, you know, if you still want her, then she can be your wife. That's clearly not an eternal principle. And, and that's an easy example. That's why I give it because it's super easy to see. That's not eternal principle. But when we, get stuck looking at commandments and laws as everything's an eternal principle, but wait, this one contradicts this one. Wait, this one, then we lose our testimonies. Or we look at it and say, but I agree with this, not this. So let's petition the church to change it. <laughs> you know, the, we're missing the point, you know, um, tithing is a stepping stone to consecration. It's a stepping stone to just loving your neighbor as yourself. That's it. It's that simple. And if we're if we can see all the gospel like that, then it it softens our hearts and it, it gives us the opportunity to ask for revelation. Right. We're like, well, God, you know, you say here that I can I can forgive 70 times 70, but you also tell me on the fourth time that I'll be justified if I want to beat the hell out of the guy that hurt me. Right. Right. So what's the better law? You know, and 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 maybe find some distinctions that surprise you. There's the obvious thing, well, just keep forgiving. But sometimes that's not the best thing because then they abuse other people. Right. So, you know, you might pray about it and get an answer you're not expecting. But if you're not thinking about it that way, you're never going to ask the questions. So to me, that's that's the whole, whole important thing about the gospel for me is constantly asking those questions. What are you trying to teach me, what our society the restoration, um, you know, if we're not asking those questions, well, well, the brethren said do this. The brethren said, I'm going to just do this. And we're constantly doing our checklist stuff. Um, we, we lose the whole spirit of what it's all about. And, and I think it's super important not to do that. Absolutely. And so anyway, that's the third message. I think it shows up in the book. And that's in the section that's talking about changing laws and changing principles, changing the gospel. Um, coming to a, a better understanding um, as to what that's for and to where we get to the point where Paul said um, to the pure, all things are pure. 
but for the impure, all things are impure. And he further said, in the and it's easier to read the NIV or NRSV or anything but the King James Version probably, um, he, he says, um, oh, maybe I should look it up to, so I don't misquote it. Um, I don't, I don't want to misquote it, but he basically says, um, the law doesn't apply to me anymore. Um, but I, I, neither am I willing to do things that are not good or not useful. Mm. And I point out in the book, he talks about the law in terms of Levitical law, Melchizedek law, and that sort of stuff. And how I'm reading that is, is him saying, we've got all these lower laws that's, you know, Old Testament's lower law. New Testament, even some of that's lower law. I, I'm not subject to that law. I have a fullness of priesthood. And the fullness of priesthood tells me that some of these laws that you are subject to are not good enough. I need to do better than that. I need to live a higher principle than these things. So I'm not subject to your law anymore. I'm now subject to a higher law. And, but neither am I going to waste time to do bad things. <laughs> right. You know, just because I'm not subject to your law doesn't mean it's useful for me to break your law. Right. You know? And, and uh, again, that's this perspective of, of uh, there's, there's more out there, you know, what's, yeah, I might be justified to do something, but am I sanctified by doing that thing? Right. Um, or am I going to be more perfect for doing that thing? That that's really an important attitude um, that, that that Paul's kind of exhibiting here. That's that's my reading of it anyway. Um, and and we see this at the NC seventy six and eighty four and eighty eight. You know, saying all things are theirs. You know, right. Things past, present, and the future. Well, how are all things yours? And how have you overcome all of the law? Um, if you overcome all the law, are you not given something higher? Are you not given a bigger law, a better law? a more perfect law and you know maybe you're going to struggle with that too but still you know right. should you expect to be progressing in right. all these things in, in any way yeah so Dude. sorry that's my long-winded answer no no that's that's, that's great <laughs> stuff that's good that's good stuff drew all right dude that's beautiful what was the name of the book again where can they find it Changing Ordinances, Losing Priesthood. It's on Amazon. If you just type my name and then uh, if you type my name, you'll, you'll get all my books, sci-fi, fantasy, all that sort of stuff too. Nice. Um, but all my, all my stuff pops up. Currently, I'm waiting for approval on the hardback and paperback. I expect that in a day or two. Um, nice. They can be kind of quirky sometimes. They they give you a template, say, make it exactly like this. and You make it one pixel off and they complain. Um, and you get it exactly right and it doesn't work. So sometimes it takes a few mess arounds and this time they're really giving me some grief. So perfect. <laughs> hopefully it's just be a uh, couple days. I'll throw a link in there so people can just go right to it and get it. But dude, that was good stuff, my man. Awesome. Thanks. Right. Appreciate that. Thanks, Drew. Super fun chatting with you. Always. All right, man. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Thank you.
Podcast.